Good morning. We have been looking at the songs for the Savior, the songs that are given to us in the first two chapters of Luke. We first looked at Magnificat, which Ryan spoke on, uh, Mary's uh, uh, I Magnify the Lord or Magnify the Lord. And um, then we went to Benedictus, Zachariah's great song. Uh, where he says, blessed be the Lord and God, uh, Lord God. And then we also last week looked at the Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest from the angels. And this morning, probably the least familiar in terms of those titles, uh, Nunc Dimittis. Okay. Uh, some of you young Latin scholars will, will know that. Ero Rasarat. Demito, Demitis, Demitit, right? Um, we all know those uh, things, those endings, right? Um, but that's the second one, the, the, the second person, you. So, Nuc, Demitis, you dismiss, you now dismiss me. Uh, you now give me dismissal, so to speak. So, uh, that's how the, these songs are named from the Latin beginning of each one of them. And so now we come to Simeon's uh, song. Uh, that is given to us in Luke chapter 2, uh, the Nunc Dimittis. This is uh, found, if you don't know where Luke 2 is in your Bible, you can look at the Bible that's in the pew and turn to page 857. We're going to begin reading with verse 21, actually, and then we'll hit the title Jesus presented at the temple in our pew Bibles. <clears throat> At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, 
and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. Fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to understand your word, Lord, to believe it, to grow in our awe of you, our admiration, our adoration of Christ, and Lord, all the more to entrust ourselves to such a God who would give us such a Savior. Lord, send us your Spirit, even as your Spirit attended Simeon, may your Spirit attend us to give us what we need, Lord, for your glory and honor. Amen. Light is uh, an amazing thing to me, one of the great fascinations of this world. Because generally, you don't, I mean, you see things because of light, but you don't really see the color that is apparently there in light until the sun sets. And then we know that it's cutting out all the other spectrums of light and all, all that left is left is red. And we've spoken of this before. I've never seen this live. I've seen pictures of it that in a sunrise on the East Coast, there's a certain point where a flash of green occurs because at that point, that specific point, the spectrum, only the spectrum of green is coming through. Uh, We know of the colors, of course, from a prism or a rainbow and then suddenly what is usually, quote, clear or white light, we see it's, it's colors. That, that's always there, but we don't see them until we see a prism or a rainbow. And it's really fascinating to realize that there would be no color anywhere unless there is light because the color you see is only that object reflecting that part of the spectrum that is reflecting the green spectrum, reflecting the red spectrum. Uh, It's not really that the thing itself has color as much as it reflects that part of light. Fascinating, really, of of how light is constructed and what it does in our world. And light is uh, the central thing announced here by Simeon. And we're going to split it out a bit in its spectrum, to look at its different colors in this passage. And so my, my title is a bit different. I'm really talking about the, the, the spectrum of Christ's light, or you might call it the rainbow of Christ's light as revealed in this passage. First, I want to look at the light that as it's confirmed by God, this is kind of an umbrella introductory statement in a way, but this light is confirmed by God through Simeon and Anna. That is, it's underscored or it's guaranteed. I, I love the passage in Hebrews 2 that gives a, the clearest explanation I know in Scripture of the f- place of miracles in the New Testament. 
Because it says the word of, of God, the word of the gospel came to us and God testified to it by the works of power and miracles. In other words, here's the word of God going forth and then here's God coming alongside and through the granting of miracles and works of power at the hands of the apostles, he's saying, you can guarantee that these are my people. This is my word. These are the ones I've sent. And I'm testifying through these miracles. And that's why we would preserve apostolic miracles to the apostles. As Paul said, the signs of an apostle, a true apostle, uh, were with me. So we guard the uniqueness of apostolic uh, miracles because this is the unique testimony of God that these are his miracles. His apostles. And so here, God comes alongside again and again the birth of this child or the presentation of this child with these messengers that guarantee or announce to us who this child is, the significance of this child. So the angels did, and they reveal themselves to shepherds. The shepherds come to Mary and Joseph and they announce to everybody what they have seen. Here's God himself confirming, announcing the true nature of this child. And so when they're presented, uh, when when Jesus is presenting it in the temple, uh, God sends Simeon with a similar announcement. So this, you should line this up with the angel's song and now Simeon's Song, And then after that, Anna's song, all giving testimony. And you can see how this comes from God because three times it says in this passage, uh, or it speaks of the Holy Spirit in association with Simeon. The Holy Spirit was uh, upon him, verse 25. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He came in the Spirit into the temple. All of this was governed and issued by the Holy Spirit, which is to tell us, oh, this came straight from God. God is sending Simeon. God is making this announcement as to who this child is. And so here in this, uh, you might remember as he begins to Theophilus, he says, uh, I, I write these things to you so that you can have certainty. Well, it's his certainty. It's our certainty of these things. We depend upon this announcement. We depend upon the fact that God himself came in Simeon and through the apostles to announce to us the truth of Jesus Christ. And they both, Anna and Simeon, are recognizing the coming of God's redemption in this person. God's testifying of this child so that we can uh, bank our lives upon this child, bank our lives upon divine testimony, divine guarantee and announcement of who this child is. And so it's interesting that their character is emphasized so much in this passage. In fact, for Anna, you don't get that much of what she says, but who she is. And her godliness and her holiness. Here again, to underscore the truth of this testimony. These were godly, holy people moved by the Spirit of God to announce to uh, them and to us 
who this person is. And it's no surprise as well that this happened at the temple. The temple is the place of the unveiling of the glory of God throughout history. And you could say this is a glory far greater than that glory that came into the temple when the priests had to leave the temple because the glory of God, the glory cloud filled it. Here the glory cloud, not physically, but spiritually and truthfully, there is a glory here that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, a glory that makes the other glory not to be glory at all. Now you think... It would be amazing to be in this place and the temple and the glory fills it and you run out, you know, because you can't stand it. And Paul says, nah, <laughs> basically not not downplaying how glorious that was. But in comparison, he's saying, yeah, that's really not glory. Here's glory. Here's glory. God come in the flesh in the temple with the announcement of Simeon and Anna to back it up. This is the Son of God. This is the one born. This is the Messiah who's come for the whole earth. That's the amazing thing about this announcement in this one tiny place, Israel, in this temple. It's an announcement that is for the whole world, the whole earth. Glory has been set down right here. So the light first is announced and confirmed by God for you, for me, for the whole earth as they come here to Jerusalem. The second thing you might notice about this spectrum of light as it is unveiled in the person of Jesus is light in humility. What a, what a hue of light that is. It's light in humility. The very fact that Jesus was circumcised, that's the sign of the putting off of sin. That's the sign put upon the flesh of Israel to which they are called. You need to circumcise your heart as well as your flesh. Your heart needs this. This is a sign of what needs to happen inside of you. Well, nothing needed to happen inside of Jesus. He was pure and perfect. But this shows now his association with us, his identification with his people, his beginning to take sin upon him. The words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the beginning of it is his circumcision. And then coming to the temple, uh, the, the purification of the mother has to do with the issue of blood in birth and the association of, of the life of a child that is born into sin. And yet, he was not born into sin. Yet, she still had to be purified. And so, in all of this, there is the humility of Christ taking upon himself our sin. And then the poverty of the family, because uh, if, if you had means, you would offer a lamb and a dove. But if you didn't, if you were poor, you could offer uh, two pigeons or two turtle doves as they are doing. And so this indicates the humble circumstances. Here's the glorious king, the future ruler of the world, and he's born into a family that can't afford a lamb. Only two doves. And 
in the presentation and consecration, it shows also that he is submitting himself to the law of God. It says in Galatians 4 that he was born under the law. There's a humility that he was born to take upon, take that law and live it out as a human being. The giver of the law, the glorious king of the earth, now as a human being is submitting himself to that law. To live that law out for our sake. To fulfill that law. It's said five different times in this passage, including verse 39, which we didn't read. That they did everything according to the law, according to the law, according to the law. To indicate that at every point he is fulfilling the law. He is living out the law for our salvation. He is fulfilling the righteousness of the law that we could not uh, fulfill. And so this is a comfort to us to see right from the beginning, at every point, the law is fulfilled on our behalf. At every point, the law is satisfied, both in his living out that law and then his bearing the punishment for our disobedience to that law. You see the amazing humility of this one, this Lord of, of heaven and earth, who would live the law for us and then, of all things, bear its punishment for us? The only one who had perfectly fulfilled the law? And now he's going to bear its punishment. But he's bearing its punishment because he is the perfect lamb. And he perfectly honored the Father and his love and devotion and giving himself up to the Father in the cross. Even at that point, he was pleasing to his Father because he was the submissive one, the, the one obedient to his Father. And now, brothers and sisters, I hope you see we are absolutely dependent upon this one for our salvation. We have broken the law in Word, thought, indeed, in ways we can't imagine. We have no idea even. We must have one who's kept the law. We must have one who died uh, for those who disobeyed that law. And so we see this glorious aspect of this light that is breaking forth. Confirmed by God in Simeon and Anna. Announced at the temple. But it comes in humility. It comes in humility. And... This is really one of the brightest parts of its glory, as the New Testament recognizes again and again. As Philippians 2 recognizes that he did not count uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured himself out and became a servant. And as several have pointed out, this indicates he truly was God. He, he showed his godness in his humility, he showed his godness in his willingness to sacrifice and pour himself out lavishly for his people. And so it's, it's interesting that historically, uh, because of the more or less mistranslation of Philippians 2, where it, it says he emptied himself. There had been again and again this effort. Well, what did he empty himself of? Well, he can't empty himself of his godness, but he emptied himself of something. And finally coming to realize this is a metaphorical statement to say he poured himself out. And also there's this 
idea, and of course it is in some of our hymns, and it's true, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We don't see the full Godhead, it's veiled in flesh. And so there's much talk, rightly so, of, of the kind of veil of, uh, of his flesh, and yet in a more profound sense we'd say it's the revelation of God in the flesh. It's the revelation of who he is, the revelation of God in his love. Through Jesus Christ. And so this light has this beautiful color of humility. This light has an amazing color of comfort. It says here in the passage that he was waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel. And this, this comfort stems from uh, Isaiah. This whole song is just rich in Isaiah. It's just rooted in Isaiah. It's, it's practically Isaiah all over again in some way or form. Uh, you think of Isaiah 40, that great statement, comfort, comfort my people. Well, the, the Greek word that translates that Hebrew word comfort is the same from the same uh, words as this. Uh, there's from the, the same form. The verb or the noun. So, uh, comfort my people. Or Isaiah 49, sing for joy for the Lord has comforted his people. And this beautiful statement in Isaiah 51. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. That's the comfort that's announced again and again in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn. And then in Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. There's nothing like a mother's comfort, nothing at all. Daddy's comfort's okay, you know. <laughs> There's nothing like a mother's comfort. And, and so the Lord uses that metaphor, that beautiful thing that we've all tasted and enjoyed. And really, we want it till the day we die. And he says, that's how I'm going to comfort you when Messiah comes. And so this consolation, as it's translated here, or comfort, it's the relief of distress or the relief of misery, the relief of anxiety, the release, relief of grief. It's the total restoration and healing of our lives. And it's interesting how salvation has that end in view because he talks about the consolation of Israel. And then he says, my eyes have seen, verse 30, your salvation. So the two are equated. He's looking for the consolation. He says, here, I've seen your salvation. So salvation is consolation. Salvation brings about. It's to the point of uh, of comfort and consolation. That's why uh, peace or shalom is always a synonym for for salvation in the Bible. Just like Isaiah 52, he he says, we publish good news, we publish uh, peace and salvation. It's one and the same thing, so to speak. It's, it's the announcement that God will so reign, He will intervene to deliver us from our enemies and bring everlasting age of peace and shalom. It must 
come from a sovereign God revolutionizing everything in that final day. His kingship is essential for this final peace that will come. And so this peace, this comfort begins here now in us. We begin to enjoy this comfort and peace in our lives. Paul um, and Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he died referred to the Holy Spirit as the helper. It's from the same word, the comforter, the helper. Like the, the very spirit that indwells us is the one who brings about this consolation, this peace in our lives. So Paul can say, uh, speaking of comfort five times at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Same word. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So... Now we are comforted in his presence and his love, the purpose he has in the midst of our difficulties, the, the view that we have of the final day in which we will have rescue from God. And obviously in that passage, he's talking about the comfort that we've received from God so that we can bring that comfort into each other's lives. That's one of the main things that you and I are to be doing for each other. This is to be a place of encouragement, a place of shelter and refuge and protection and relief and encouragement. I was struck several years ago when an unbelieving psychologist was asked about uh, his wife. And he says, the one thing I set myself to do every day is to encourage her. That's what I set myself to do, to bring encouragement into my wife's life. There's a go for you, men. Encourage your wife. Comfort your wife. This place, your home, is to be a place of comfort and refuge and shelter. You boys and girls are to be a protection and shelter and comfort for your own brothers and sisters. But many times we're the affliction that our (laughs) brothers and sisters are trying to get away from. And fathers, sometimes for you and me, uh, for husbands, we're part of the affliction, not part of the refuge and the shelter to be an encouragement. Because he is bringing this comfort to us in him. The comfort of his love and presence. The comfort of his good purpose for us. That goodness will follow us all the days of our life. Even in the midst of tragedy. That's what we... (laughs) We're to follow each other in that kind of goodness. To rejoice in the light of this uh, comfort that we have in him. And to comfort one another in it. But this... Light has another, uh, another glorious hue or color. And that is, as he says in verse uh, 32, it is a light, one, for revelation to the Gentiles, and two, for glory to your people Israel. A light that is a revelation uh, to the world and a glory to Israel. And so this revelation to the world, it's the shining into their darkness. That is, 
demonstrated by, backed by our love for one another and for them. Our love for one another, Jesus teaches us, is a major part of the light shining into darkness. And then, of course, our love for them. That we have created a fellowship of light and comfort. That we announce the glory of Jesus. That we, uh, that we bring the gospel to our brothers and sisters. And that it is announced through the very way we love people. And the very way we love one another. And so that is a remarkable thing that... We are the revelation in word and deed of God to this world. And that's why he can say that for glory to your people Israel, it is our glory that we have been included, that we are part of this light that is in the world. This light then is our glory Matthew 5 says that we are the light in the world. The sending in our, our, our bulletin says you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That is your dignity. That is your glory. Even to the point in Acts 5 when it says they left the presence of the council, the disciples, after being uh, uh, persecuted and abused by them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And that's always an interesting phrase. They're rejoicing in the honor of being dishonored. The honor of being so associated with Christ that they could be dishonored along with him. So you can see that same faith as Moses where he said the reproaches of Christ are greater riches than what Egypt can offer me. I'd rather stand here and receive the riches of bearing the reproaches of Christ than to have whatever the world could give to me. And so it is our glory. We have to ask, do I count it as my glory? Do I glory in him? You remember Jeremiah 9, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the mighty man in his might, or the rich man in his riches, but let him boast in this, that he knows and understands that I'm the Lord, uh, who is uh, steadfast in love and justice and righteousness. Now, boasting doesn't mean, of course, bragging in that sense, but it means what do you depend on? What do you value? What do you treasure? What is the, do you center your life around? What do you live for? None of these things. It is him. He is my value. He is my treasure. He is my glory. And it is a glory that I can be a part of making him known. And even if that costs me everything, that is my glory. So this light is revelation and glory. But this light has a... Not a dark side, but we say when the light hits the darkness, the darkness shows itself. Simeon goes on to say that this child, verse 34, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Rise. And uh, the rest of the New Testament is almost always associated with resurrection, though it's not what it means technically here. 
But the more general idea here is that he's the one who raises you up in every way, right? He's the one who raises you from death, uh, from sin, out of your particular sins, out of a life of anxiety or a life of anger or envy, out of prayerlessness or neglecting the word or dull, hard-hearted worship. He, in him, we rise to live new lives. So you and I, by his grace, can be a part of those who are, uh, who are appointed for the rising of many in Israel. And, of course, as a whole people, we will be raised in the last day in the true, in the final resurrection. So he is for our being raised to new life and final new life in the last day. But it also says he's for the fall of many in Israel. He divides the world. He splits people in two different ways. And this is, the, again, the background is Isaiah, where we read in Isaiah 8 that he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to Israel. A trap and a snare. Many shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And the astounding thing about the revelation of Christ is it reveals ultimately who I'm going to be. What kind of person I'm going to be. And of course, if I become a person who submits myself to Christ, it is by his grace. But it, it divides people into those who will be humbled and helplessly acknowledge their sin and cling to Christ and hide in Christ for rescue. Or those who, for, what, for a myriad of reasons, reject Christ. Perhaps some because they're offended at the thought that someone would have to die for me. You think someone would have to die for me that I'm that evil? No, I reject that. Or the thought that I can't achieve righteousness on my own. Or I I can't stand before God on my own. I shudder to think. uh, I shudder when I think of what I said in my heart as as a college student. When I first heard about justification by faith. And that God would only accept me through what he's done in Christ. I remember thinking, well, I just want God to accept me for who I am. Ugh. And I really did think that. I just thought, that's, that's offensive to me. You should accept me for who I am. You know. And people, maybe the idea of submitting to Christ, the, the idea of calling him Lord, the idea of doing something that I can't achieve on my own, whatever reason. And, and so many religions will say, oh yes, Christ is a great moral teacher. But they deny and reject him. He's the only one who has died for sin and we must have him for salvation. And so for those who imagine themselves to be strong and high, who rely on their own merit and power, there will be a stumbling at Christ, a stumbling over him who don't take refuge in him. And I'm reminded here of what uh, Jesus says in Luke 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. 
Because that ends, as he says, that the tax gatherer is not justified. I mean, is justified and the Pharisee is not. The tax gatherer who only said, be merciful to me. The Pharisee who basically announced how good he was in God's presence. And God said he was not justified and accepted. The one who helplessly depended was accepted. And Jesus ends with this. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the, the gospel, as the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God, which is the gospel, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The gospel pierces us and it divides us as to those who will rise or those who will fall. Matthew Henry says, many will extract poison to themselves out of the balm of Gilead. This sweet, wonderful balm that is giving us for our comfort and our forgiveness, our rescue. And yet it's turned to poison uh, by those who would reject it and turn it around. He says they extract poison to themselves. And so... The question for you and me is this. Uh, what, is, what is this light for me? Is this light a rising or is it a falling? Am I going to hear this light and, and embrace this light? Welcome this light and give myself to this light? Or in my pride, in my self-righteousness, in my independence, am I going to reject it? And, you know, in all the Christmas celebrations and all the uh, decorations, etc., here's the central thing is that the light has come into the world. And it's for your salvation. It's for your rescue. May you rest in him. And may he be arising, raising you up to a new life of fellowship with God in him. Let us pray. Lord, we... Thank you for the giving of the light of Jesus Christ, this great revelation of which we are part of. Lord, this light is now our glory. It is our hope for salvation. It's our hope for a new world. It is our hope for every day of our life. It is our hope to, to, to be raised to new life continually, to manifest that new life, Lord. To more and more escape the darkness and bring more and more light into our lives. And, oh, Lord, we pray that we will embrace you and admire you for your humility, your self-giving, this love that would stand in our place, that would bear, uh, keep the law for us and bear the punishment of the law on our behalf. Oh, Lord, make us to admire you and to glory in you and to realize the the weightiness of what is going on when the gospel goes forth. As Paul himself said, this gospel is light, is life unto life for some, and it's death unto death for others. This fragrance of Christ. Oh Lord, may the fragrance of Christ not be death to us, but life, because we run to him and we entrust ourselves helplessly to this one who alone is light in this world. Bless us, Lord, to that end, we pray. Amen.